0: Welcome back to the program. Whether you grew up in a big city or a small town, if you moved away, the chances are you've gone back to visit where you grew up, and when you did, particularly if it was years later, everything had changed. It probably triggered a kind of nostalgia that both made everything old new again, and at the same time reminded you that often the best way to go home again is in your imagination. For Avery Corman, returning to the Bronx was not just an exercise in nostalgia, but also a look at how the world and all of us have changed over the past half-century. For Avery Corman, returning to his old neighborhood in the Bronx was not just an exercise in nostalgia, but also a look at how the world and everything in it has changed over the past half-century. Avery Corman is best known for his novels Kramer vs. Kramer and Oh God, which inspired the classic feature films. He was born and raised in the Bronx. And has written powerfully about family relations, divorce, and midlife crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome Avery Corman to the program to talk about his latest work, *My Old Neighborhood Remembered*, a memoir. Avery Corman, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. It's great to have you here. As you talk about the Bronx in the days that you grew up there, particularly during the period immediately after the war, and and, and what it was like as a kid there. There's a sense not only that it has changed as a place, but but it has gone through so many psychological changes. Talk a little about that.
1: Well, the largest change, actually, since I grew up there to today is basically demographic. Uh, There's just a different population there. One of the oddities is that physically, this is very hard to conceive, physically nothing has changed. When I went back, To my old neighborhood, the streets where I played street games, the schools that I attended, there was not a building that had come down nor a building that went up. It was exactly, it was almost like a stage set, almost a time capsule. But what had changed was the sense of neighborhood life. When I walked those streets, literally, there was almost no one on the streets where I used to play, and the streets were filled with kids playing stickball and punch ball and jump rope. All of that was gone.
0: And you talk about how that really started to change in some respects, even before the demographic change, that after the war it changed, that suddenly the streets where you played stickball were filled with cars going by, and that changed things.
1: Well, of course, street games were an important part of our life, and there was gas rationing during World War II. So we had the streets all to ourselves, a stickball game which could occupy a city block which played right in the street in the gutter. Uh, it, it's odd to think about it, but some of the older people would bring out aluminum chairs and sit and watch us play stickball. Some of the older people would play. And then as soon as the war ends and gas rationing stops and we start to get into a post-war economy, you, you cannot even sustain a punch-ball game in the middle of the street anymore. They're they're
0: just, we're overrun. Talk a little bit about the demographic shift. Over what period of time it really happened, and and how gradual was it? Well,
1: it wasn't as gradual as you would think. Um, First of all, there was a kind of common misconception amongst a lot of people who did not grow up in the Bronx, where I grew up, that the Bronx was predominantly Jewish. In fact, there was a large Jewish population. In my specific neighborhood, it was pretty much divided between uh, Jews and Irish Catholics. There were several churches that were active. Uh, There were huge shifts in population in all North American cities after World War II, and we could talk for an hour about all of the influences on it, but what basically happened in the Bronx and happened very rapidly was there were two public policy fiascos of an enormous nature. One was Robert Moses built the Cross Bronx Expressway, which gutted neighborhood after neighborhood to put a superhighway right through the heart of the Bronx. And the second thing that happened was they uh, intentionally built about 15,000 apartments in the northwest section of the Bronx. And that allowed a lot of people who were unhappy with the influx now of African Americans and Hispanics into the area to basically flee in white flight. Those two public policy decisions did contribute to an an enormous upheaval and eventually many people who had lived in the Bronx for generations left.
0: And when you went back, talk about the fact that all of this As you say, the buildings were the same, the physical place was the same, but it didn't have the same representation. It wasn't the same kind of place in in any way, even things like the Lowe's Paradise Theater and the Ascot and places that you hung out as a kid. Well,
1: every storefront is in place, and every store (laughs) is occupied by a store different from the stores that I grew up in. That's a big shock is the neighborhood candy stores, which were such a lifeline for anybody who's lived in city neighborhoods in those years. I mean, if you just think about the enormous amount of soda and ice cream we needed just to sustain ourselves in life, there are none any longer. And and that's that's a big shock when you realize what a what a important element in neighborhood city life was the candy store. And you cannot find an equivalent candy store any any longer. I would suggest the kind of penny margins that a candy store owner operated on probably couldn't sustain a business today. And in addition to that, the whole uh, this is a crazy thing to say, but I think the whole idea of the way sodas now become uh, in aluminum cans and bottles—you're <laughs> not going there to get one at a fountain any longer. But the the absence of candy stores is just—it's too dramatic to even think of
0: and of course the candy stores not only gave you candy and egg creams they sometimes doubled as places for bookies to hang out
1: absolutely i mean that was part of the neighborhood life and that is certainly gone bookies in working class neighborhoods in cities were were a mainstay and horse players would get the following morning's paper at the candy store the night before to get the betting lines And the candy stores with bookies usually had a sign outside saying cars to the track. We call those bookie candy stores. Those are all gone. All of that is gone. I I wonder if there is a bookie in any old neighborhood any longer.
0: (laughs) Of course, one of the things that stands out in the Bronx is Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium. Talk a little bit about your relationship to it growing up.
1: Well, here's the thing about going to baseball games, and, and all of us who live in the day of modern Major League Baseball can, can really uh, think of this as almost a dream. You went to a baseball game the way you went to the movies. It wasn't very expensive. Uh, I know you have to adjust for prices, but even adjusting for prices, it wasn't expensive. We all went to Yankee Stadium, which was relatively near a few subway stops away. And in those years, the Polo Grounds, where the, the then New York Giants played, was one subway away, from, a stop away from Yankee Stadium. So we willy-nilly would just decide to go to a ball game. You'd be standing around on a Friday afternoon with your pals, and someone would say that Bob Feller was coming in to pitch with the Indians against the Yankees. We just decide and go to a game, and just like that, you walked up, got tickets. There was it was no good deal.
0: Certainly, that that has changed as well as this, the stadium itself, obviously.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, they tore down the old Yankee right. Stadium. The first stadium was the house that Ruth built, they called it. Uh, then it went into a renovation, and then they tore the whole thing down and put up the new Yankee Stadium next door. It's, it's, it's a little strange when you think about it. It's not like they moved to another city. They moved the new stadium one block away.
0: One of the things you talk about is that, as you go back, things looked smaller than you remembered them as a kid. Talk a little bit about that, Avery.
1: Well, everybody, everybody who goes back to where they once grew up, I think, has this experience. A, a street where you played, when you look at it, it just loomed large. Um, the street where we played stickball, it's just a, a small city street. Uh, The schoolyard where we played basketball and converted it into almost every kind of game you can imagine is just a little yard and the the hill right outside my apartment house where I remember distinctly with my flexible flyer sled sliding down and crashing in at the end. It's a just slight upgrade or downgrade, (laughs) depending on if you look at it. It is by no means a hill.
0: Tell us about PS33.
1: Well, this is interesting, in so far as PS33, where I entered in grade school uh, in 1941, is still standing. It's exactly the same building. I went back and I actually sat for a little while in what is now their cafeteria. It's it's a, a collegiate Gothic building. that were very popular at a certain time in New York, and it was there that we played and sang to do, you know, the Muffin Man and played dodgeball and were processed through a system that honestly doesn't exist any longer. Um, If I could take a moment to just talk about the teachers. The teachers we had in the 40s and the 50s, many of them were in teaching because they couldn't get jobs anywhere else. The smart girls became teachers because there was no corporate life available to women and Jews and Irish Catholics and Italian Americans couldn't get jobs because of prejudice in corporate America either. So in the Depression and the years following, these intelligent people who at another time would have been doing something else in their lives gravitated toward the teaching profession, and they were dedicated there. They were there year after year. The words teacher turnover didn't exist. And what it did, it gave us a tremendous solidity And also, uh, solidity in the neighborhoods themselves. The teachers were respected. It was was really a golden age of teaching. So out of a negative, meaning these people couldn't get jobs easily, was a positive for children of the working class because they were there for us.
0: And they were part of the neighborhood, and one of the the interesting things you talk about, and and it's so easy to forget, I suppose, is how freely you all moved around this urban neighborhood. There weren't concerns on the part of parents if you were out five minutes late or the things that go on today.
1: Well, one of the things that I remembered, it wasn't something that was in my common reference, but just when I sat down to write the book, I remember D-Day on June 6, 1944. It was announced in our classrooms that we were to go to our respective houses of worship and pray for the safe return of our service people overseas in the D-Day invasion. Now, I was eight years old at the time, and we children, small children, none of us, we all did it because we were all caught up in, quote, the war effort. Well, none of us went home to get a parent to take us to these different houses of worship. We just left school and went there directly. We didn't go home. We went, we scattered around the neighborhood to the different churches and synagogues that that were on the list where we should attend. We just moved freely through the neighborhoods. I, I think it's a hard thought to think of today, of small children having that kind of freedom.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that, and what do you think that you and, and the other kids in the neighborhood, what did you gain from that in terms of, of having that freedom?
1: Well, we certainly were independent kids. We, we have to think of this as the age before television. Uh, we listened to radio. Uh, there were no video games. Uh, there were no supervised play. It was up to us to create our own street game life, street game universe, and we were out on the streets all the time and in the schoolyards, and I think it did give us, give us kind of independence, certainly an ability to take care of ourselves, and I think that was valuable.
0: And how did your parents and other kids' parents feel about this? There wasn't the kind of helicopter parenting, obviously.
1: Well, one of the, uh, the iconic views, uh is uh, a tenement mother looking out a window and keeping track of kids. No, I've I've heard that used often when people describe their neighborhoods and how there was always someone watching. I actually do not remember that. I don't wish to offend anybody, but nobody leaned out windows when we were playing to keep track of us. The fact is we were keeping track of ourselves, and I think our our parents just accepted it. You weren't watched. Uh, You came home at the pace you came home after school, you, we had very little homework. I must say, in terms of of the way in in which instruction was done in those years, you didn't have much homework, and you just slipped out and went out and played with your pals, and and the parents parents understood that.
0: As you spend time thinking about this, as you wrote, the old neighborhood remembered. What for you is the biggest takeaway from all this, not just the nostalgia and your fond memories of a day gone, days gone by, but what's the biggest thing you come away with in terms of how life has fundamentally changed?
1: Well, I think in terms of neighborhood life, there was a sense of community that I, I would suspect is lost today. This notion of uh, everybody's in something together. And it began for the children at that time with being children of the home front during World War II. There was a feeling that all of us were part of this larger effort that uh, the street was at war, the neighborhood was at war, your family was at war, and I think that gave us a, a connection with one another. I think of those old city neighborhoods as being what we dream and fantasize small-town American life is like at its best, the kind of Norman Rockwell vision of America. And I suspect that that's pretty well lost today. But I certainly can see it just walking through that specific neighborhood and not seeing very many people on the street. All of the buildings are still occupied fully, so it's not as though there's been a diminishing of the population. It's just that the notion of gathering together and being supportive, and in my personal life, it, it really saved me because uh, I was a child of divorce at a time when divorce was unheard of. Uh, I lived in a household where the heads of household were deaf mutes. Everything was in place for me to be marginalized and feel like an outsider and, and live a life accordingly. But in fact, none of that ever came up amongst my friends. I was embraced, I was one of the kids, I was one of their pals. And that sense of community and bonding, I think, was tremendous. And my guess is it doesn't really exist in in many neighborhoods any longer.
0: How much of that is as a result of the failure of the suburbs to recreate, really, that kind of community life, which they kind of tried to do initially, but it didn't really work very well?
1: Well, I think part of it is, and not to blame the suburbs, uh, I think part of it is, is geography. Once you start adding space, distance to locales, it, it gets harder to get a core group together on a street corner. It gets harder to just get children to gather. Once a child has to be driven in a car somewhere rather than walk there himself, it, it's difficult to replicate what we had. And I, I, I don't... I don't criticize suburban life. I knows, suburban life has been criticized in many, many ways, but it really has two strikes against it in being able to match the kind of condensed population that we had that contributed to the neighborhood feeling.
0: And I wonder if technology today isn't, beginning to reverse that trend in that it creates a kind of of technological density that that kids growing up today are able to stay in touch and and connect with each other in ways that certainly are different from but similar to the way they could in dense city neighborhoods.
1: Oh, I think, uh, yes, I think that's a very good point. I think social networking and text messages, all of the bad things people say about that, and there are many bad things said said about it, in the, in the way it dominates young people's time, uh, is, is the kind of bonding, uh, and, and it should never be uh, set aside when we're considering, is all this good or bad, uh, that's a very good thing, the way, the way kids can stay in touch with each other.
0: And talk about the Bronx in general, and how it's viewed today, when you talk to people that, that are certainly outside of New York, about the Bronx and the images that it conjures up.
1: Well, the Bronx had a terrible period during the 60s and 70s. The, uh, the post-war years were, were brutal in the Bronx, the uh, the lowering of, of income, and we all knew for a while people who were leaving the neighborhood, they were the rich kids, so to speak, and they were going to the emerging suburbs in Long Island and New Jersey and Connecticut and places like that, Westchester, uh, and then the Bronx went through this terrible Bronx is burning period. and it just fell apart. But I've been back many times over the years, and you do see a change. You're not, you're not walking past charred buildings any longer or hulks of former buildings. Uh, things, things have really rebounded, and it's much better. I think there are a lot of people who still think of the Bronx in those 1960s and 1970s terms, and it isn't like that at all.
0: It's interesting, though, that nothing has come along or nothing has happened to really change that image. There, there is no newer iconography of the Bronx to replace those 60 images of, of the Bronx's burning.
1: Well, that, I think you're right about that, because the, these kinds of images stay in people's minds. Uh, I had a recent uh, a converse, correspondence with a guy I grew up with after he read my book, and he's been living in Canada for many years. And he still has trouble explaining to people that not only when he grew up, there was no uh, devastation. And he's talking about the 40s and 50s, but that it isn't that way any longer. So those images are just potent and they stay around, but they're no longer accurate.
0: Avery Corman, his book is My Old Neighborhood Remembered, a memoir. Avery, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.